Heavenly Father, at this time, we as a church, gathered church, come together before your throne of grace. And we thank you so much for the mercy and grace you shower upon us in times of our needs. And we come before you with a desperate need, O Lord. And the greatest need that we have this morning is the need of our Creator, the need of our Savior. There is no greater need than your presence in our lives, than your fellowship in our lives, than you. Everything else is secondary. The first and the foremost importance is the living God who made us into his own image, who bought us by the blood of his son, who created us for his own glory, and with whom we will be living forever and ever. Heavenly Father, we pray that you create in us that intense appetite for you, for your presence amidst the fallen world that we are living, that we will not lose focus on who you are and what you are doing. We pray that through this ministry of the word, you speak to us and enlighten us and penetrate our souls. And we pray that you discern our intentions and purposes. Make us laid bare before you, the omniscient, all omniscient God. And we pray that you perform surgery on us. And we thank you for these life-giving words. Your words are not dead words. They are the living words. Your words are not blunt words. They are sharper than double-edged sword. Your words are not passive words, but they are active words. And we thank you for this gift of the holy scripture you have given to us. And we pray that we would not be the same as we listen to the word, but grow in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And we give you glory, honor, and praise. In the name of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ, we offer this prayer with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. Let's turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. It is amazing how much he is in store for us in these three verses. I have never seen the glory and the beauty of the scripture of Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, the way I have seen in these few weeks. And uh, we have seen the last week, the temptation of Christ in this verse, how he was tempted and yet how he was without sin. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, and we will look at the sympathy of Christ. We have seen at the temptation of Christ, and we will be looking at the sympathy of Christ. Hebrews 4, 15. Shall we all lift up our glorious voices and read together? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without Sin, so much is in store for us to meditate upon as we read these words. I would like to read even the same verse from another translation, the modern translation, the message. And you see how much it connects to the modern minds. We don't have a high priest who is out of touch with our reality. He has been through weakness and testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. He experienced all that we go through, yet he was without sin. In this verse, we see the similarity of Christ in us, and at the same time, the distinction between Christ and us. The similarity that we see is that who in every respect has been tempted as we are. That's the similarity. And we also find the distinction here. 
And the distinction is that yet without sin, we struggle with sin, we inherit sin, we fall in sin, but the glorious beloved Christ was distinct. He was without sin. So when I preached the last Sunday on the temptation of Christ and from the groups I have been pondered with this one central question which I assured you that I will give clarification this Sunday. And the question is, how could Christ sympathize with us whom, when he did not fully share in our sinful nature? How could Christ sympathize with us when he did not fully share in our sinful nature? I am going to give you six insights in this matter. And only if you intensely focus and make efforts to comprehend, you will get it. Or else it will fly off your mind. So please do uh, listen carefully. And if you have any doubts, you can come to me later for clarification and I will make attempts to do so. Now follow each and every insight factors that I'm giving you carefully in order for you to understand this complex question. And I'm telling you that as I have been reading so much on this, even scholars were battling to help people understand how we can solve this puzzle. The complexity that we see that Jesus was tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. How could he sympathize when he could not partake in the sinful nature? The first thing that we need to understand is this. As uh, I was uh, struggling with this and these are the things that I have came up with. When the Bible says that one who in every respect as... Uh, uh, who, one who has been tempted in every respect as we are does not mean, hear this carefully, does not mean he faced every type of temptation as we are. A lot of people when they look at it, they think that, did Jesus face sexual temptation by the way? Did, did Jesus face this kind of temptation or that kind of temptation by the way? The scripture here when it says, he faced temptation just as we are. Doesn't mean that he faced every type of temptation. Now in order for you to convince, I'll tell you one uh, good insight about ourselves. Even all humans don't face all types of temptation. Even we ourselves don't face all types of temptation. For example, I don't face the temptation of homosexuality. I am not sensually attracted towards men. So did Jesus, only when people ask is, did Jesus face sexual temptation? Because they ask in the context of women. But what about men? Did he face homosexual temptation? It doesn't mean every type of temptation. Please remove that from your mind. Because we ourselves don't face every type of temptation. I don't face homosexual temptation. I don't face theft temptation. When I look at it, at your purse, come on, rob it. I don't face that. But some people, some people face it. Some people don't face any adulterous temptation. They don't face it. Especially some women, they don't face it. They don't have any adulterous temptation. No attraction towards the other men. So let us not think that every type of temptation. What is the point of the author? Now get it carefully. What is the point of the author when he said that he was tempted in every way. Hear this carefully. 
There is a wonderful logic that we find between the humanity and the temptation. Because the Bible also says, as I showed you last week, that he became human in every aspect. He became a human in every aspect. So what is the point of the author? Hear this. Just as Christ was human in every possible sense. We see that in chapter 2. He was human just as we are. He shared in flesh and blood just as we are. Just as he was human in every possible sense. Which means Christ shared humanity in every aspect. In the same way, he faced temptation as a human in every possible sense. That's what it means. He faced temptation in every possible sense. That means his humanity was not an appearance. It was a reality. Which is what we see that in the gospel, uh, especially in the letters, if anyone denies Jesus as coming flesh, he is not of God. So it was not an appearance, it was a reality. And also his temptation was not an appearance. It was a reality. The text does not speak about all types of temptation, but the reality of temptation as a human. Mark this, very important. The second the second is that we only think about the temptation, not understanding the essence of temptation. If you understand the essence of temptation, you understand the struggle of the Lord Jesus when he was tempted, just as we are. The essence of temptation, you know, is what? The essence of temptation is to disobey the will of the Father. The question is not about sexual immorality. The question is not about pride. The question is not about covetousness. The question is about disobeying God. That is what sin does. What is sin? Sin is disobedience. Sin is breaking the commandments of the Lord. And there are two kinds of sins that we know. Sins of commission, sins of omission. It is not only don't do adultery, don't lie, don't covet. It is also do good works. Preach the gospel. Devote yourself to pray. So... The essence of temptation is to disobey the will of the Father. Every temptation is an enticement to disobey God. The focus is not about Christ facing every type of temptation, but that he faced the temptation to disobey God. Are you getting it? He faced the temptation to disobey God just like us. Not about every type of temptation. For example, we see that. And, and we need to understand that facing temptation is not a sin. A lot of people think that temptation is sin. No. Temptation is not a sin. Yielding to temptation is sin, which is what we see Christ faced it, yet he was without sin. We see that very clearly in Hebrews 5.8. It says that he learned obedience through what he suffered. Right? Yet he was without sin. He, he suffered temptation, but from that he proved his obedience. He never was disobedient. And also we see that in Philippians 2.8 that he was obedient to the point of death. So the focus is on obedience to the will of the Father, not every type of temptation. Right? Now here is a very important thing. And the third factor is this. The third factor now, if you understand this, that really should make sense. You know what is that? You know the power of temptation when you fight against it, not when you yield to that. 
Many people think that facing temptation is very powerful and yielding to temptation is. No, yielding to temptation is easy. In fact, I would argue that Jesus' temptation was greater than you and me. Why? Because he fought against it. He did not yield to it. Not an instance that he disobeyed the will of the Father. He fought, he fought, he fought. It is easier for us to face temptation because we yield to that. Greater fight is in conquering temptations, not in yielding to it. In fact, that I could argue that his temptation was even fearful. His temptation was even vehement and painful than any of us would undergo because he never ever disobeyed the will of the Father. The fourth factor we need to understand is that the absence of inherent sinful nature does not diminish the full force of external temptation. The absence of inherent sinful nature does not diminish the full force of external temptation. Now here is a point that I would like to tell you. And I was discussing with the interns and we had some time of discussion on this. And this is what we need to understand. We don't understand this because we are inherently sinful. We don't understand this. Why this question is coming? Because we are inherently sinful. We don't understand that. What, how, how that experience could be? But the Bible says that the absence of inherent sinful nature, the nature that you have within you, does not diminish the full force of external temptation which Christ faced. And uh, the best example is that Adam and Eve are examples of how powerful external temptation could be. And they fell into sin. They didn't have any inherent sinful nature. They faced the full force of temptation from the outside and they fell in sin. But Christ was without sin. So don't underestimate the power of external temptation just because of the inherent sinful nature. The other factor, the fifth factor is that, now here is a point that we need to understand. How many of us really burn to sin as believers in the Lord Jesus? Let us not speak like the heathens and pagans and people who don't know God. Children of God are very different. Now here is a point that I would like to tell you. Even as children of God, not every temptation we face is due to inherent sinful nature. Are you understanding? Even as children of God, we not face every temptation with inherent sinful nature. We also, remember that, we are also partakers of the divine nature. The 2 Peter chapter 1 says that we have escaped from the moral corruption that is there in the world and we have become partakers of the divine nature. There is also the divine nature in us. Divine nature means not deity but the divine characteristics. And we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Right? So we also are partakers of divine nature indwelled by the Holy Spirit and face the full force of external temptations without love for sinning. Are you understanding? Sometimes we face the full force of external temptation with love for sinning. But there are many times we face the full force of temptation without love for sinning. So don't diminish the powerful force of external temptation just because you are inherently, we are battling with sin. For this reason... Most commandments, now hear this carefully, for this reason, most commandments, not all, 
But most commandments in the Holy Bible are related to external temptations. If you read the Bible carefully, to the believers I'm talking about, most of the commandments are external temptation, not inner passions. Few verses are there. For example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that flee from sexual immorality. He is speaking about the external force of temptation. The last and sixth one is even more powerfully convincing than everything that I have presented. Now this is a problem that we miss the context. You know what? The point of the author in saying this was to prove that Christ is the better high priest, the greater high priest, distinct, separated from the Old Testament high priest. Now I would like to show the scripture for you to get convinced. Before that, let's read again Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Right after stating, you see what he mentions about the Old Testament priest. Hebrews chapter 5 Verses 1 to 3. Actually commentators, theologians says that Hebrews chapter, the chapter, chapter 5 should begin from 14 actually. And I, I agree with that. That's the way that you see the melodic line, that is the way that is uh, the flow of thought, it should begin from, chapter, uh, uh, from verse 14. But you should understand that the codification, the division of chapters and verses are not inspired. Uh, Bible scholars have done that. But when... The author wrote, it did not say chapter 1, verse 1. No one writes a letter like that. Right? You try writing to your wife and she will tell you. <laughs> Hebrews 5, verses 1 to 3. After mentioning right after that, you see what it says. For every high priest, hear this, for. Now, when the author is saying here for, it is in comparison to Christ. Christ faced the temptation, yet he was without sin. But... For every high priest in the Old Testament chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. But Christ is not like that. That's the comparison he's making. Christ also sympathizes because he was without sin. But here, the Old Testament priests were sympathizing because they were also sinful. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So the point here is not to prove that Jesus faced every type of temptation, but to compare how Christ is a better high priest than the OT high priest. Because he sympathizes with perfection, but OT priests sympathized with weaknesses that's the point that we need to understand so i've done my best after beating my head all through this week to come up with this six factors because honestly i have read it no one clearly pointed out and uh, which made my job easy so i had to take from different sources depend on the grace of god's wisdom and i'm sure that this may be of some help i'm not telling you must be fully convinced but of some help. But there are two observations that I want to make from this passage and to this question. You know what is that? You may not want to have a Christ who is only sinless and has no experience of human struggles and weaknesses. Anyone want to have a Christ like that? 
who is perfect, holy, sinless, but he never was human and never knew what it is to go through human weaknesses and struggles. If so, how can he sympathize? And at the same time, you may not want to have a Christ who is only human, but has no sinlessness and holiness in him. Do you want a Christ who is only human and had no sinlessness and holiness in him? We don't want a Christ like that. He will be like any other. How can he help and become the source of salvation in that sense? He cannot be. He cannot help us because he himself fell in sin. He cannot be the source of salvation because he himself fell in sin. How can he be the source of salvation? Now the beauty of the biblical revelation and the fully deity and fully humanity of Christ is this. We need a redeemer, deliverer, savior who fiercely faced temptations just as we are but at the same time as a human was sinless and holy in resisting the enticements. That's a redeemer we need. Who knew what it is to be a human. Who knew what it is to face the temptation and yet live a sinless life. And that's what we see our beloved Lord Jesus Christ is. The word which I rarely say in my sermons. Hallelujah. Therefore, Christ is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and help us. Let's now get into this more on what this sympathy means. Now read Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 again. It, the, the word was put in a negative sense. Negative means not bad sense. It means on the opposite side. It says that, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. It's a negative statement. In other words, he is telling, we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Now, what is this sympathize? I was uh, looking at different languages. From now on, I thought about putting Telugu, Hindi also, so that we will see the flavor of translation of these words. We see that in Telugu, Manato Sahanu Bhavamu. Leni Vodakadu. Telugu people don't laugh at it. <laughs> I'm learning. Manato Sahanu Bhavamu Leni Vodakadu. Sahanu Bhavamu. Saha means ko. Bhavamu means feeling. So he's a co-feeler, a co-emotional person. That's what sympathy means. He is a co-sufferer. He suffers with us. He feels like us. And in Hindi, he says that, Jo hamari nirbalta o me, hamare saath dukhi na ho sake. And the word that is used in Hindi is dukhi. And in Telugu, we see sahanu bhavamum. And in English, we see sympathy. Now, what does it mean? When, when the author is saying here about Christ's sympathy, it means, hear this carefully, the sympathy of Christ with our weaknesses is both real and redemptive. I will show to you what it also means in the scripture. The word sympathy in the Greek is sympathio, sympathio, which means to be affected with the same feeling as another, a co-sufferer. Now observe here carefully. Because the way we use sympathy in our modern English is very different when it is presented here. 
in the modern english actually when we talk about sympathy it means only a feeling right i sympathize with you i have sympathy on him which means only a feeling but when the greek word here is used sympathio it not only means a feeling but also carries the element of active help are you getting it it's not just an emotion it is also redemptive he comes to help and the best verse for me to prove to you is in the previous chapter in hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 in the same line of thought in a different sense hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 it says for because he himself has suffered when tempted which is real like us he is able to help those who are being tempted do you see the word help he knows what temptation is yet he was without sin and he can come to help us he is there to redeem us to support us to empower us when we ourselves face temptation so we understand that the word sympathy carries not only an emotional feeling but also the redemptive help active help that christ provides you know what is uh, uh, the scripture says here that he sympathizes with what does it say that he sympathizes with our strengths what does it say he sympathizes with our weakness now what is weakness what is the weakness that christ sympathizes now weakness we all know that it's very simple you don't need to have a scholarly academic knowledge to understand weakness means without strength simple when we say it is his strength means it is a very strong thing when we say it is his weakness it means that is there is no strength in him in order for him to face it which means that no strength to fight against temptations christ knows that you and i are fragile weak easily shaken and have no strength to fight temptations fight against sin and not only that he knows that we have no strength to persevere under afflictions now when the bible speaks about temptations it is about two things one is the temptation to sin which are moral sinful commandments that we see that we should not be doing like do not lie do not commit adultery do good it's not only that but also afflictions sufferings wilderness it may be any kind of pain that a person may go through so the bible when it says about weakness it not only speaks about you have no strength to fight against sin i know that you have no strength to persevere under affliction i know that you easily become depressed anxious weakened temptation to fall away because we are weak people no strength to face physical emotional and mental pain christ knows that you know when i was uh, thinking about this you have no idea actually when i prepare for a sermon how much i go through sanctification oh my goodness it convicts me it breaks me exposes my own sinfulness and i struggle with my own sins when i prepare sometimes i get afraid am i worthy to stand and preach the word because of the convictions and brokenness that i go through and one prayer that i pray is lord never bypass me and touch others never bypass me and touch others you you first work in me and you change me first and then you touch the congregation who are 
listening and heeding the word of God because the greatest temptation of a preacher is to preach to people than to himself, to touch lives than to touch his own life. That people should be encouraged without he himself being encouraged by the word that he preaches. And I would like to avoid that by the grace of God. You know, I was deeply convicted of this. I was deeply convicted of this and I'm wrestling with this. And there is a song that uh, it speaks about the Christ sympathy. I kept listening, kept listening, kept listening. So that the more I think about it, I would be conformed to that. You know what is the insight here? That I was observing as I was going through this. Christ sympathy is counteractive to how we react in the family. Counteractive. Do you understand? Opposite. Very dissimilar to how we husbands and wives and parents react in the family. When you see your spouse failing, weakened, committing blunders, not doing it, you know what comes out of us? Judgmentalism. What comes out of us is accusation. You stupid. Or you, how many times will you do? Keep on accusing. You know how much it discourages a person when he faces accusation? We are more like the devil when we accuse than like the Lord Jesus Christ. And there may be some devilish husbands here sitting and listening to the word. Or devilish wives that are sitting here listening to the word. Please wake up. Let us submit to the word of God. We have been called to imitate the Lord Jesus and I have been deeply convicted. When my wife fails, when she doesn't meet my expectations, how is my reaction? Do I criticize her, demean her, put her off, speak harsh words, judge her, crush her with my words? You know, sometimes we think in the family that it is better for me to, better for you to slap on my face than speak these hurting words. I used to, I remember once in, a, in Hindi, I wrote this uh, line, Zakam, jism par laga hota to sahi liya hota, lekin jab dil par laga to kya kar paata? <laughs> Which means, if my body is wounded, I can bear. But when my heart is wounded, how can I bear? The punch is in Hindi, brothers and sisters. You need to learn that. <laughs> But the point here is that, brothers and sisters, don't be like the devil in the family. And even the conviction is that, how do we treat our children when they fail? You, you should, we should ask our own children, hey, how do you see us? Do you see us when you fail? We are very sympathetic towards you. Or when we look at them, my goodness, the way we speak, the judgmentalism, the criticism, Harsh words, accusation, even threatening. Is this, does this, sympath, does this reflect the sympathy of the Lord Jesus? My children were very privileged that they committed a great blunder during the preparation of this sermon. <laughs> the laptop that, he, that they had was terribly expensive. Even more expensive than my laptop. And they broke it. You ask them how I spoke to them. <laughs> what is this? You should have some you know, responsibility to really do that. 
should be very you should be very careful of that just normally i spoke to them or you know little maybe little firm but they were very scared about how i react to them god's grace that he exposed <laughs> during the time <laughs> of this but seriously brothers and sisters i want to be like christ i want to be like christ when my children face failures i'm not like christ i'm not perfect but i was thinking deeply about i should engage in conversation than pounding with accusations and criticism and demeaning words that would only crush them rather than encouraging them to pursue what god wants them to be and we should learn this from our beloved savior lord jesus christ that he is sympathetic towards us and and you know what is interesting he is sympathetic to us in his perfection imagine when you and i are weak and this is how we behave what could have happened to our spouse and children if we were perfect just imagine that just in our weakness sins failures this is how our reaction is i think that is one reason god doesn't help us in our weakness because he knows that guy if this is how you behave with your wife and husband and children when you are weak i know what you can be if you come little strength you would be destroying their lives because of self righteousness i am better this is how you behave i want to tell you that if we face in the marriage like this husbands and wives go and talk to your spouse i'm very hurt the way you criticize me judge me rather than encouraging me in my weakness go and speak have a open conversation if you parents and children have this problem children go and talk to your parents or parents talk to your children parents children don't speak like that but talk have an open conversation let our families become christ like amen and let's work on this because of the grace of the living god and i was deeply convicted of this now why is the bible mentioning here about the sympathy of christ now this is the emphasis you know what is the emphasis the application of christ being a better high priest christ being sympathetic able to sympathize and help us in our weaknesses is this this is the application and in verse 10 it says verse 16 it says you know what is that shall we all read this together beautiful because of christ being like this let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need go go to him run to him with confidence near to the throne of grace i love what even uh, it says in confidence in esv and other translation says boldness which we see even in telugu krupa pondunatlu dhairyamuto dhairyamuto krupa krupa simhasanam noddaku cherudumu let us run to the throne of grace confidently will you in ever just think about this when you are weak and fail do you have the confidence to face the people who are very solid perfect in their acts no right we run away from them my goodness i can't face but here it says run isliye ao i love the word ao come on come on people ao hum anugraha ke simhasan ke nikat 
ihao band kar chale ihao i spoke to a brother who is a missionary in ahmedabad i called him and said what is ihao he he how right he how so i called him and asked him and he said that it means sahas brace yourself with boldness that's what it exactly means i love the word he how bandkar which means brace yourself with courage you don't have to cringe with fear about how god deals with you in your weakness no you don't have to fear you can boldly go to him and he is not there to condemn you he is not there to judge you he is not there to punish you he is not there to crush you he is a god of sympathy and grace and mercy and he comes for help then i was looking at the greek what is the meaning of confidence you know what it means i was very uh, it is not just speaking about boldness it literally means the freedom to speak everything you have in your heart my goodness can you speak to anyone like this you can have complete freedom of speech that's what it means literally go and speak everything that you have in your heart you have that privilege that approachability and also the transparency now you and i who are under the new covenant who are living in a different era have no understanding why the author is telling draw near draw near to the throne of grace because he is speaking to the old covenant people and they knew what it is to approach the god of the holy bible under the old covenant for example we need in order for you to stretch your understanding in order to see the weightage of these words i want to take you to leviticus chapter 16 now you need to understand that in the old testament only one person only one person out of millions of people had the privilege to get into the holy of holies and that is only the high priest none even the priests and levites had no approachability to this living god only the high priest and that too we see here that you see the sobriety terrifying thing to approach the throne of grace leviticus 16:1-2 the lord said to moses after the death of the two sons of aaron we know that it's about nadab and abihu when they drew near observe the word drew near before the lord and died this is what the experience was of the people of the old testament if you approach with some kind of filthiness unauthorized sacrifice when they drew near before the lord and died and the lord said to moses tell aaron the high priest your brother not to come at any time how different from the new covenant they cannot come to my throne of grace at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat you see the word mercy seat the throne of grace you cannot enter any time so that why so that he may not they knew what it was to face god only once a year on the day of atonement in which in hebrew is called yom kippur the high priest would enter into the holy of holies and approach the throne the mercy seat of god and you know what was the condition just for you to understand the sobriety of these words i want you to know that you see that what is the condition 
same chapter in 16, verse 3, it says, But in this way, Aaron shall come to me. What kind of rituals they have to follow to come to the throne of grace, into the holy place? You know what is that? There are two things he has to do. With a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Bull is a male animal, you know, the bull is. And then the ram is a male sheep or goat for a burnt offering. Now, never have observed this. What is this bull for? And what is this ram for? It's very interesting. It says in verse 4 again. He shall put on the holy linen coat. You cannot just come like that. Holy linen coat. And shall have the linen undergarment on his body. Even the underwear that they wore. God told him what kind of underwear it should be. My goodness. <laughs> it says that this is the undergarment that you should wear. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist. And wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. This is how they should go once a year to the mercy seat. And then in verse 11, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself. Now see, bull is for what? Bull is for Aaron and for his household shall make an atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. Why? Because... You cannot approach the holy grace of God, throne of God, without atonement for sin. Because it speaks about, the reason I'm showing you people is that it speaks about the holiness of God. God is holy. You cannot take him for granted. You cannot approach him with sin. There should be an atonement. And how blessed are we in the New Testament, I will tell you later. And then in verse 14 it says, And he shall take some blood of the bull, and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Tuck, 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 tuck. The blood of the bull. For what? Atonement for his sin and the sin of his household. Where God would decline from his righteous indignation. His holiness is satisfied. When the life is laid for the price of sin that he committed. And then we see after that, Leviticus 16.15 says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, the whole nation, millions of people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Now I was thinking about why bull for him, which is a big animal, just one person? And here, for the whole nation, just a goat. Very interesting. Now, this is my assumption. Because none of them had the privilege of entering into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest had it. So when you sin and enter into the Holy of Holies, greater is your sin because greater is your privilege to enter into the throne of grace and greater shall be the atonement for your sin. This is my assumption. Okay, and I may be wrong, and you don't have to agree with that. And then in verse 16 it says, That she shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of the transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of the meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Hear this carefully, people. When normal people leave this, they think that how God is terrifying. How God is merciless. How God is cruel. You can't comprehend this because of your sinfulness. Sin 
even not only causes us to commit sin it blinds us to behold the magnificence of the holiness of god and that's why we ask such questions but god is not less merciful god is very merciful and he made a way for the atonement if he was merciless he would have destroyed the whole people but he made a way for the atonement so that in this way his holiness is satisfied and his mercy is also shown that's the beauty and the glory of the god of the bible you know what it is said it is doesn't say in the scripture here but the jewish tradition says that whenever the high priest entered into the holy of holies once a year there was a rope tied around his waist rope why if god strikes him dead because of some unworthy way of offering sacrifice who will go inside and bring him <laughs> they will also be dead one after the other will be dry it is like electrocution <laughs> so this rope they would drag him because no one can dare to enter the holy of holies you know brothers and sisters the modern day generation has no high view of the holiness of god because they have no intense view of their own depravity you will only understand this when you know how sinful we are and today you know why people approach god there is no atonement for suffering people do you know that in the old testament if you have financial problem or if you have health problem there is no atonement for that it's not that i atone for my financial crisis for my relational problem for my health problem no the atonement was for sin alone because sin is the greatest problem and today if you see that a lot of people don't have the great magnificent lofty view of god because they approach god not with a sense of their own wretchedness but because they want god to solve their personal earthly problems if we pray for one thing we should pray lord show me how depraved and sinful i am that i may know how holy you are and at the same time how gracious you are now hold this and now let's read together again leviticus and hebrews together in order for you to make sense you know what the lord spoke to moses after the death of the two sons aaron when they drew near observe drew near before the lord and died and the lord said to moses tell aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy of holies inside the veil because the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die now you read people with this hebrews 4:16 only then you will understand let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace do you understand why confidence is required now after you see this is who god is man you cannot go to him at any time you would be slain to death but here the author of hebrews says that come you don't fear christ is sympathetic because of christ people listen to this because of christ come near why how do we get this confidence drawing near it is only because of this the confidence boldly you can go to god despite your weaknesses and yet receive mercy and grace instead of condemnation is due to the gospel of the lord jesus christ because christ laid his own life on the cross shed his blood offered his body paid the price for our sin because of christ's death alone God's justice was satisfied and he gave us the bold privilege to come to the throne of grace and he would not face condemnation you see this the same book confirms this 
Hebrews chapter 10. Again, see the words draw near. Hebrews 10, 21 to 22. It says here, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, our beloved Savior, let us draw near. Draw near. Why? Because people were afraid of this holy God and they were drawing away from him. These days also in some of the legalistic churches, they preach in such a way, instead of drawing near, they draw away from the Lord. Because they only show the holiness and the anger of God, which is good. But not in the absence of the mercy and the grace of God. That's why the, Bible, the song that we sing says that, Our sins are many, but His mercies are more. Praise God. And it says that, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled, clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. How did this happen? Because of Christ's death on the cross. The same argument we even see in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. You observe this, people. Let us read together how great words of encouragement that we find. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does an advocate do? He defends. He fights. And that's what it says that if we sin, we have an advocate who went to the cross, shed his blood, offered his body, satisfied divine justice. You don't have to live under condemnation. You can approach the throne of grace. And that is exactly what it says in verse 16. What does it say? Why should we approach the throne of grace? Verse 16 says that, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Now hear this carefully people. You have to come in your weakness. It's not that things will happen, work out automatically because Christ has gone to the cross. No. You cannot be passive in your weakness. You have to take the response to draw near to him that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. I want to tell something which is very important. A lot of people say these days that, oh, I am weak, I am uh, imperfect, I am struggling with failures and all these things, which is true. But there is a great problem there. You know what is the problem? Now hear this. There is no reason for us to dwell in weakness. Yes, we are weak, no doubt about it. But we must not live in weakness. We must run to the throne of grace and find strength in our weakness. The Bible doesn't say that just you are weak, you are weak. So more you are weak, you need to approach the throne of grace. The greater you realize your weakness, the greater you should run to the throne of grace. So that he would give you the grace to stand strong. If you are not conquering our weaknesses, hear this carefully, have this marked upon your minds and hearts. If we are not conquering our weaknesses, it is not that we are weak. But because we are not running to the presence of God and pouring ourselves in prayer for help. You are weak in your life because you are weak in prayer. You are weak in your everyday life because you are weak in approaching the throne 
of grace. It is not in our ability to live this Christian life. But God has provided the grace to us. And I have shown you last week also, Christ being the God-man, how did he fight the temptations? How did he do that? He not only, the Bible not only tells what we have to do, it shows what Christ did. What did Christ do? Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. He also went to the throne of grace. He also, when he faced human struggles and weaknesses, he did not stay alone but rushed to the throne of grace. To him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And Luke 22, 42 to 43 confirms this. You know what it says? The, the weak words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the same time, his transparency and what God the Father did for him. He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now this cup is the cup of the wrath of God, which the Lord Jesus is about to drink. He says, Lord, I can't face this condemnation. I can't face this uh, judgment of you upon me, this suffering and this abandonness from you. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. I can't bear the sight of it. I know what I'm going through. If it is possible, remove this cup away from me. Listen to this carefully, brothers and sisters. If Christ had not drunk this cup, you and I would have drank it. If Christ had not drunk this cup of wrath, you and I would definitely drink it one day. Praise God that he did not withdraw from going to the cross. And what did he say? Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours be done. A lot of people think that God is angry of the Old Testament. Christ is merciful. And Christ is pacifying Father so that Father would relent and Christ would be sympathetic. Brothers, hear this carefully. Your will be done. What does it mean? Although God was holy and righteously indignant because of the sin we commit, He Himself sent His Son to die because of His grace and mercy. It's not that God of the Old Testament is an angry God. The God of the New Testament, Jesus, is a merciful God. No! The same God who was holy and righteously indignant sent his own son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And when he prayed, not my will but yours be done. You see what happened? When he went to the throne of grace and he pleaded for grace and mercy in times of need. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Christ himself found that gracious help to go to the cross. And he says here that let us with confidence approach. You know what is one of the biggest problems in the modern day saints? We find our refuge in something else. Not in God. We find our refuge in people. When you are weak, people are important in God's means. But they are never refuge for us. No pastor, no matter how great John Piper and MacArthur is, he can do nothing. No pastor, no spouse, even your spouse cannot take the place of Christ in helping you. Only support, never substitute. No pastor, no spouse, no family, no one in this world can take the place of God to help you in your weakness. Christ and Christ alone. But many of us are believers, you know, instead of spending time pouring their hearts, they sit with people expecting some comfort. Stop it. 
Stop it, brothers and sisters. And some people find their refuge in entertainment. You know, if I'm weak and all, maybe if I watch a movie or play a sport or do something, I will be revived. What? Entertainment is a, entertainment is a good recreation. Hear this, I'm not against entertainment. Entertainment is a good re recreation, but it is never a refuge for your weakness. Don't make what is a recreation a refuge. You will be wiped off from the same entertainment that you are trying to seek for some relief. No. So when you see that you are intensely horrified by the weakness, you need only one thing, the throne of grace. Not people, not entertainment, not staying alone, just sitting and worrying about it. No. Even you yourself are not a refuge for your weaknesses. No entertainment is a refuge. No person is a refuge. Christ and Christ alone. And the Bible tells here that in Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There are two words that we see. The gracious character of God. What do we see? Mercy and grace. Stuart Briscoe is a good Bible teacher and that's how he defines. Hear this what he says. Justice is getting what we do deserve. Justice is getting what you deserve. You deserve condemnation because you committed sin. That's justice. Mercy is getting what we do deserve. Okay, mercy is not getting, sorry. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And grace is getting what we do not deserve. A beautiful, you have to wrestle with this to understand. I understand that in one reading, it may not make sense. But you need to meditate upon that. Justice is getting what we do deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. That means condemnation, you should get it. But God has given the mercy. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. And that's the beauty of the mercy and the grace of God. You know what is strange? The Bible tells here, let us with confidence approach the throne of? What is throne known for basically? What is throne known for? Whenever we think about throne, it is known for what? Judgment. Throne is known for judgment. But here the Bible says that the God who is seated on the throne is not just there to judge you. He is there to be gracious towards you. Therefore, the throne of God here speaks about the gracious presence of God. Which is available whenever you pray, wherever you are. Are you understanding? The throne of grace is the glorious, gracious presence of God. Which is available wherever you are. Whatever time that you require. That is the beauty of the new covenant because of the blood of the Lamb. So what the author is saying is, come to the gracious throne of God in your weakness. Don't run away from him. He's not a scary person. He is the most high God who is most merciful and gracious. Maybe in some instance we can say that he's not like your husband or like your wife. He's not like your parents. Shamefully, we should not be saying it, but that is true of us. He's not like your pastor. Maybe. <laughs> He's not like your mentor. Maybe. He's not like any other person in the world. 
He is completely different. He is most gracious. Run to him. He helps you. He doesn't come and condemn you. But also at the same time, the author is warning you. If you don't come to the throne of grace, you will face the throne of judgment. That's the balance you see in the Hebrews. If you don't come to the throne of grace, you will face the throne of judgment. How? By running away from him. By refusing to believe what he says about him. You will face the throne of judgment. You know, one of the best books that has really remarkably transformed my understanding of God, besides the Bible, is Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly. If you haven't read it, I strongly recommend. I think we should read that book at least once a year. Beautiful book. Now, hear what he says in this book. Very beautifully balanced, portrayed what the author of Hebrews is trying to say here. What elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of sin, but whether the sinners come to him. Whatever our offense, whatever your sin, he deals gently with us. If we never come to him, we will experience a judgment so fierce. It will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us. If you don't approach him in your weakness and find grace and disbelieve him, don't go to him, you will face the judgment. If you do come to him, as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will be his lamp-like tenderness for us. We will be enveloped in one or the other. To no one will Jesus be neutral. <laughs> you will either face the throne of God, the throne of grace, when you run to him. If you disbelieve him and run away from him, you will face the throne of judgment. Christ cannot be neutral. Wonderful. That is exactly when people read the author of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, they think that it is speaking about losing salvation. It is speaking about the judgment of God coming upon you and he will wipe you off. But actually nowhere he says using these words to scare people away from God. He was using these words of warning and again he jumps into the words of comfort to lure people, to attract people to come to God. There is not a single verse in the entire Hebrews that says run away from him. No. For example, just see in chapter 4. Just in chapter 4, you see that in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. What is he telling? Don't lose it. Run to him. Verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. After speaking about the sobriety of God, he was not scaring away. He's telling that, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 4.14. You see what it says. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't run away. Don't remain in your weakness. Run, run, run. There is no other refuge for us except Christ. Verse 16. Our words. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now here is the point that I want to tell you. The goal of warnings and exhortations in the Bible. Hear this carefully. If you don't get it, you will misunderstand God. The worst thing you can do is to misunderstand God. You can misunderstand your spouse, not a big problem. Misunderstand your friends, 
not a big problem. Misunderstand your church, not a big problem. But if you misunderstand your maker, the consequences are costly. That's why we need to get a right understanding of who God is. Now hear this. The goal of warnings and exhortations was not to present God as a scary being or to scare people away from God. It is to show both the loveliness of God and also the consequences of unbelief in Him. It is to draw people to God that such balance was maintained. Because there are some people who just see the loveliness of God and run to Him. There are people who need warnings, exhortations, so that through that they would run to Him. It was never intended to scare people away from God. And it says in Hebrews 4.16 that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, what is this need? This need is our weakness. And God comes to us anytime when we come to him. The question is people here, is there any a time that we are not in need? Any a time that you think that, oh, um, I don't need God this time. <laughs> any a time I love what Jerry Bridges says. Our worst days, you need to again meditate two, three, ten times to get this. But I'm reading it. Who can get it? Get it. Who can't get it? Get it later. But you try to get it. Our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And our best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Whether you are in the worst days or the best days, you are never beyond the reach of God's grace. We need God in our sins. We need God in our fears. We need God in our anxieties. We need God in our pain and suffering. We need God in our weaknesses. We need God when people reject us. He, he is our only refuge. Remember that when it says confident, go and pour out your heart to him. Pour out everything you talk to him. Sometimes I tell God, Lord, I don't like that person. I hate him. I don't want to look at this face. Will you give me the grace to love that person? I go and tell everything. That's what I've learned. Be open. People listen to this carefully. The only person before whom you can be 100% transparent and yet find love and acceptance is God. You cannot maintain the transparency before anyone. They will spit on your face. Even the spouse that you think who loves you the most. Remember that if they know what all is going on in your heart, they cannot accept you. That's why Ed Welch says that there is always some limitations when people open themselves. Always limitations. Only to some extent because of the fear of love and acceptance that you cannot find if they know your heart and a person. But you can be assured. Even if you don't open up, you will see it. It's not that when you open up, oh... Is this your weakness? No, no, no. He knows it. He knows it. You can just go and open. Tell everything to him. 100% say to him. And he will come to your help. Jonathan Edwards says that in his 65th resolution, resolved very much to exercise myself in this all my life long with greatest openness I am capable of. I wanted to be as open as possible to my living God, to declare my ways to God and lay open my soul to him. All my sins, temptations, difficulties, sorrows, fears, hopes, desires and everything. And every circumstances. If there is anything that I want you to hear is when I preach. 
And if there is anything that I cannot let you hear is when I pray. Because you can't bear the sins I confess people there. <laughs> My fears, oh, this is what Stephen David is. We had a heroic impression about him. This fellow is worse than me. <laughs> that is what you will find if I listen to my secret prayers. That's why I get away from everyone. Sometimes I look at him and say, that is Joy or Joe or my wife hearing my prayers. <laughs> I, no, no, I, they can't bear my sins if they hear me. Honestly, yeah, I see that. Someone comes, I stop it. But I can talk to God openly. <laughs> Lord, I'm open. You know, one of my recent prayers is this. Uh, you know, people, please cultivate this. Write your prayers. Beautiful. This is my prayers that I wrote. Just brief prayer. Hear this. My recent prayer I wrote to my God in my pain. Oh Lord, my heart is filled with pain. And my emotions are wrenched. I feel completely broken and messed up. Who can know and empathize with the depths of my pain besides you? I am weak and helpless. I am unable to focus and sleep well. I am not in a position to deal with my heart's condition. Have mercy on me, O oh God, and heal me. Make me emotionally healthy, mentally sound, and inwardly pure. I look unto you, and don't turn your face away from me, for where else will my help come from? Are you not my maker and redeemer? If you don't come to my help, I will perish in my affliction. Come, O Lord, and heal my soul. And this is genuine. Recently, not once upon a time. And I keep loving to be as transparent. Now here is the question, people. Do you believe that God will help you and give you the grace and mercy in your weakness? A lot of people don't. They don't. They may pray, but they don't believe him. You have to believe. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Yes, Lord, I know. I, may, I might have got angry thousand lakhs of times. But yet I will come to you and I believe that you are able to give me the power to overcome that lust. I believe that you are able to give me the grace to become patient. That you may give me the grace not to become anxious. I believe. I believe. If you don't believe, you won't get it. I would like to close with John Bunyan's illustration here. You all know that next to the Bible, you don't understand this image until I explain. You know that the best book next to the Bible is Pilgrim's Progress. And he speaks about how a person before Christ burdened with sin. And when he comes to Christ, he will not get into heaven directly. He has to go through struggles, trials, temptation, pain, affliction. And he gets confused. Sometimes he is tempted to give up and get back to his old life. But again, God comes to his encouragement. Come on, persevere, 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 persevere till the end. And in this journey of entering into the heaven after he became a born-again believer, he meets an interpreter. And these are all fictitious figures in order for us to understand how Christian journey is. And the interpreter is the one who explains to him the crucial truths of the Holy Bible. That's his business. And one day what he shows is that he shows a wall here. He shows the wall. And the wall is set on fire. Huge fire. Okay? Fire. And then we see that that fire... The, 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 the man, there is one person on this side of the wall. He's trying to pour water on the wall so that he can quench the fire. He pours water on the wall. And then the more he pours water on the fire, the greater and hotter the fire becomes. And this guy doesn't understand this. What? When you pour water on the fire, what will happen? 
it dozes off. But here it becomes more ablaze. How could it be? And then the interpreter says, the person you see on this side of the wall is the devil. The grace of God is so abundant upon your life. The mercy of God is so rich upon your life that the devil is trying all his best to doze off the grace and mercy of God upon your life. But do you know who is the person on the other side? He is taking the oil of grace. The more the water is pouring, the more oil of grace is pouring on the other side of the wall which you are not seeing. So that you would persevere and stand strong till the end. Let me read the exact words that he says. This is the Christ who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the, in the heart. By the means of which no matter what the devil do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. And in that you saw that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire. This is to teach you that it is hard for the tempted to see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. The person who is going through temptation and afflictions, he may not be able to see that. But God is working behind, pouring out his grace of oil so that he can keep the fire in your heart safely till the end. And that's what he's doing even through this preaching, giving us hope, encouragement, persevere. I would like to just close with what all we have seen in this last two weeks. Let's just now you read this and see how it makes sense to us. Hebrews 4. 14 to 16. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Let us brace ourselves up and read with joy and hope in our hearts. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, if there is any unbeliever here, never repented, living a nominal Christian life, today is the time to repent of your sin and believe in that one Savior who died for us, shed his blood, raised from the dead, he is your salvation. And you who are believers, tired in this life, tired with weaknesses, struggles, temptations, burdens, and sorrows. Take heart, dear daughter, dear son. Your Christ is your empathizer. He is pouring oil of grace as the devil is trying to quench that fire. Look to him. Let us with confidence run to him. And he will keep us safely till the end. Shall we all stand up and pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you with defenseless head. We have no strength in ourselves. And with no hesitation, we come boldly before you. Not because we are good and righteous, but because of the good and the righteous Savior who atoned for our sins on the cross and gave us the bold privilege of access to approach your throne of grace. And pray that you honor your word in our hearts. May we not harden our hearts today if we hear the voice of the living God through the words of the scripture. May we not remain in unbelief. May we not look to people. May we not look to the entertainment. 
may we not look to ourselves because the answer is not there the answer is at the throne of god at the throne of grace alone you are our only refuge and as the psalmist said where does my help come from it doesn't come from anywhere in the world it comes from the maker of my soul and lord we pray as you know the baggage of sins and weaknesses and sorrows that we are carrying have mercy on us and give us your help in times of need that we may live a life of strength in the power of your grace and persevere till the end as the enemy is seeking whom he may devour like a roaring lion let the throne of grace pour out more and more oil of grace upon us that the fire will not quench but intensify and ablaze more and more for your glory and for our perseverance till the end and we believe you can do that o lord because our god is not a god of weakness like the men who are the men of weakness you are the god of strength the almighty god who created the heavens and the earth and the starry hosts and nothing is impossible with you your mercies are greater than our weaknesses your grace is greater than our sins your comfort is greater than our affliction your joy is greater than our pain and we pray this morning that you o lord come to our aid jesus the lover of my soul cleanse the tears of our heart encourage our defenseless weak and fragile hearts and give us a grace to persevere till the end like a soldier like a warrior in this warfare that is only for a little while and then when our beloved savior comes back from heaven he will take us to be with him with whom we will live forever and ever where there is no sin no sorrow no death no tears but only the presence of the living god in whose presence there are pleasures evermore help us a lot to long for that day and until then persevere in our faith growing stronger and stronger and never weaker in the name of our lord jesus we pray with thanksgiving amen amen Thank you for listening to the message. We believe you have been greatly encouraged in your heart. Stephen David also writes articles that are relevant to today's generation. You may read them on his blog www.messageforourage.blogspot.com. I repeat www.messageforourage.blogspot.com. You may also email him at cstephendavid at gmail dot com. I repeat, c s t e p h e n d a v i d at g m a i l dot c o m. Grace and peace be to you.